0: One of the benefits of gathering on the Lord's day as the Lord's people to worship the Lord is that it helps us to reorient our lives around the Lord, to set our gaze upon him and his kingdom, reminding ourselves of the truth that we find in his word. During the week, we are pulled in a lot of different directions. We have a lot on our plate. We carry burdens. We deal with trials. We're busy And it's easy for us to lose sight of some of the things that we need to reflect on and remember. It's easy for us to forget some of the glorious truth that we know in the gospel from God's word. And so we go through the week, we experience these things, then we gather here in this place and we sing a song like Amazing Grace. We sing those words when when we've been there 10,000 years. And we remember how short our lives are. Think about that. There's gonna come a time when we'll have been with the Lord in his consummated kingdom for 10,000 years. Compare and contrast that with how many years you've been alive and how many years you have left. It's not much. And so we gather And we sing God's praises. We remind ourselves of these glorious truths. We remember our king and his kingdom. And it stirs up our love and our affection for him. And it helps to stir us up to love and good works. We are going through the Gospel of Luke in our sermon series. Going through the Gospel of Luke helps us to remember Jesus, to know him, to be amazed by our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We've entitled this sermon series, The Surprising Kingdom. And what Jesus did when he came, the manner in which he came, The life that he lived, the things that he taught, the miracles he performed, the company that he kept were surprising. And we want to be people who are continually surprised and amazed by Jesus. We never want the gospel to become commonplace for us. And so we pray that as we continue to work our way through the gospel of Luke, we would know Jesus more. We would grow in our understanding of what it means to follow Jesus as one of his disciples. So far in Luke's gospel, we've read about events that have led up to the beginning of Jesus' public ministry. Luke's gospel, by the way, is the longest book of the New Testament and provides us with so many wonderful details about the, the life and the ministry of Jesus. And so far, we have learned about events that took place before he was born. We've learned about the events that surrounded his birth, what happened shortly after his birth. We've got a little sneak peek of what his life was like when he was 12. And then we jumped ahead to his baptism by John. And after his baptism, he went into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil, where he resisted temptation, perfectly obeying God's word. And this morning, we take uh, another turn. Here in our passage that we will study this morning, Luke chapter 4, verses 14 through 30, we will see the beginning of Jesus' public ministry. And right up front, Luke begins to give us a picture, an idea, a hint of what is coming. He begins to give us a preview of what. Jesus will experience in his ministry what he will do and how some people will respond. So our text this morning is Luke chapter 4, verses 14 through 30. we me go ahead and read this. I encourage you to follow along. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, Is not this Joseph's son? And he said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, He went away. Well, I think we can summarize this passage with the words fulfillment and rejection. We see fulfillment and rejection of the man and the message. Let's begin with the fulfillment of the man and the message. Jesus returned from his time of testing in the wilderness to Galilee And once again, Luke highlights the presence of the Holy Spirit in the ministry of Jesus. He said that he returned in the power of the Spirit. The devil had tempted him, but had failed to weaken him. And verses 14 to 15 indicate that his public ministry got off to a good start. We read that, He went around proclaiming and teaching, and he was being glorified by all. Again, up until that point, he lived his life in relative obscurity. He was not widely known. The first public event was his baptism, which probably that got people talking about him. But then there was this period where he went away, away from the crowd, away from the people for 40 days. And then after that, he came and began to proclaim the gospel. And word began to spread about him. And he was being glorified by all. People were responding positively to his preaching. And what we see is that preaching and teaching were central to the ministry of Jesus. And we're going to see this next week in Luke chapter 4, verse 43 where Jesus said, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. He must go and preach and teach. He was sent for this purpose. He was sent for the purpose of proclaiming the good news of the kingdom. Of course, we will also see next week and in the rest of Luke's gospel that his preaching was accompanied by compassionate and miraculous deeds. While in his hometown of Nazareth, he went to the synagogue, as was his regular practice. But here, Luke slows the narrative way down. So he covers um, the early part of his ministry with just a couple of phrases. He went about teaching, proclaiming, he was glorified by all. But when it comes to this account in Nazareth, Luke slows the narrative down and begins to give us More detail. Jesus was given a scroll. He stood up. He unrolled it. He found the place where it was written. He read it. He rolled it back up. He gave it to the attendant. He sat down. All the eyes were fixed on him. Do you see the detail that Luke gives us in this account? He's calling attention to the events here. He's wanting us to pay attention. He is saying what took place here is significant. You need to understand this. So what happened? While he was in the synagogue, he was handed the scroll, and he opened it up and read a passage from the book of Isaiah. Now, throughout the book of Isaiah, we learn about a figure whom the Lord promised to send to his people. One of the ways this figure is described is with the title Messiah. The Hebrew word translated Messiah means anointed one. In the Old Testament, we see various people who were anointed with oil for specific roles, such as priests and kings. The prophet Isaiah foretold of a coming deliverer chosen by the Lord to redeem Israel, who was then referred to as the Anointed One or the Messiah. In Isaiah chapter 11, verses 1 and 2, we read, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, And a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding. The spirit of counsel and might. The spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. Jesse was the father of King David. And the shoot coming forth from the stump of Jesse is a reference to the descendant of David. Who will be a king ruling over an eternal kingdom. In other words, the Messiah who would come would be God's chosen and anointed king. In Isaiah 42, verses 1 and 2, we read, Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. The Messiah was the servant of the Lord, upon whom was the Holy Spirit. There are numerous passages in Isaiah that describe the servant of the Lord, who he is, and what he will do. What Jesus read when he opened the scroll was a combination of Isaiah chapter 61, verses 1 and 2, and chapter 58, verse 6, with a couple of lines left out. And in these verses, we see that the messianic servant transforms lives through his spirit-empowered preaching. We read that the spirit was upon him because he was anointed for a special purpose. So the Messiah... The servant of the Lord would not be anointed with oil, as many others were, but would be anointed with the Holy Spirit. We've already seen in Luke's gospel that Jesus was anointed by the Holy Spirit at his baptism. And after Jesus read from Isaiah, he boldly declared that the wonderful verses he read were fulfilled in his preaching. He was telling them that he was the chosen one. The king in the line of David, the servant of the Lord, the Messiah, anointed by the Holy Spirit to declare the good news of God's salvation. Jesus is the one who has come in fulfillment of all the prophecies. He was the long-awaited Messiah. Jesus, the eternal Son of God, who took on flesh by adding to himself a human nature, is the man in whom all these prophecies find their fulfillment he told the people you have been waiting for the servant of the lord you have been waiting for the messiah you have been waiting for god's chosen and anointed king who would come in the power of the holy spirit to proclaim the good news and now i'm telling you that i am he He told them, I am the one you have been waiting for. I have come as God promised. One of the things that is important for us to understand as followers of Jesus is the way the Old Testament points to and finds fulfillment in Christ. Jesus was saying all these passages, all these prophecies, all the things the Lord foretold Have come to pass in me. As followers of Jesus, that changes the way that we read the Old Testament scriptures. When we read the Old Testament scriptures, we know and understand and believe that they point to and find their fulfillment in Jesus. Praise the Lord. He is the one. So, what was the message He delivered? He proclaimed that a new era was dawning, and the time of God's salvation had arrived. What the Lord promised long ago was coming to pass, but he was not declaring it as a passive observer. He was not saying, "Hey, look at this thing that's happening over here. Do you see it? No. He was saying, "I am the one who was bringing this to bear." This is coming to pass in and through me. In Jesus, the poor receive good news. The brokenhearted receive healing. The captives are set free and those bound are released. Indeed, the messianic servant proclaims the year of the Lord's favor. Jesus described the Lord's salvation using language that would be familiar to his Jewish audience. It would be familiar not only because he was quoting from Isaiah, but because the language Isaiah used pointed back to an institution of Israel called the Year of Jubilee. The Lord instituted the Year of Jubilee in Leviticus chapter 25, verses 8 through 34. And the Year of Jubilee was to occur every 50 years. Listen to Leviticus chapter 25, verses 8 through 12, which says, You shall count seven weeks of years, seven times seven years, so that the time of the seven weeks of years shall give you 49 years. Then you shall sound the loud trumpet on the tenth day of the seventh month. On the day of atonement, you shall sound the trumpet throughout all your land. And you shall consecrate the 50th year and proclaim liberty throughout all the land to all its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee for you, when each of you shall return to his property and each of you shall return to his clan. The 50th year shall be a jubilee for you. In it you shall neither sow nor reap what grows of itself, nor gather the grapes from the undressed vines, for it is a jubilee. It shall be holy to you. You may eat the produce of the field. In the 50th year, every 50th year, the Israelites were to return to the land of their possession, their ancestral property. And the Israelites who were sold to become indentured servants were to be released and sent home. If someone were in dire straits and they sold their ancestral land, their property, there would be a time in the future that it would be returned to them if they, were, they had sold themselves into indentured servitude, there would be a day, a time when they would be released, when they would be set free. Think about the relief for those who were in that situation, who were under those circumstances, who were in financial hardship. Think about that relief that they could look forward to In the year of Jubilee, the year of Jubilee was a time of restoration, liberation, and new beginnings, especially for those who were downtrodden and hard-pressed. Well, as great as that was, Jesus was proclaiming something immeasurably greater. With the coming of Jesus, the Lord was bringing salvation to his people, not merely from temporary economic hardship or oppression, but from the oppression of sin, Satan, and death, In Jesus, God's people would be finally and fully restored, healed, and truly liberated with their debt of sin completely forgiven. The year of the Lord's favor had arrived. He did not say that the restoration the Lord promised had been fully consummated, but that the new age had begun with his arrival. This good news was proclaimed by Jesus. And this good news proclaimed by Jesus gets to the heart of Christianity, of what it means to be a Christian. We are not Christians because of our effort, because we've lived good lives, because we've earned God's favor. We are Christians because we've heard the good news and received the good news. The good news that God saves sinners like us in Jesus Christ. The good news that God liberates those who are in captivity as we were in captivity to our sin. The good news that God gives sight to those who are blind as we were all spiritually blind apart from the the sovereign saving work of the Lord. You see, we are all in need of salvation. And the good news is that God saves sinners in Jesus Christ through his life, death, death, and resurrection. Friend, if you're not a Christian, our hope and our prayer for you is that you will hear, receive, believe the good news. You too are in need of a Savior. You too are in the need of the forgiveness of your sins. We are all made by God. We are all accountable to God. We have all sinned against God and are deserving of God's judgment. And therefore, we need a Savior. God in his mercy and his kindness has provided that Savior. His name is Jesus. Now all who repent and believe in him will be forgiven of their sins and given the gift of eternal life. Our hope, our prayer for you is that you will believe in Christ and be saved. Jesus quoted the passage from Isaiah which focuses on the poor, captives, blind, and oppressed. Of course, this was not only good news for those who were financially and materially poor or those who were imprisoned or those who are physically blind. But throughout Luke's gospel, he does highlight that those who were hard-pressed and downtrodden because they were poor, oppressed, sick, or social outcasts were frequently the ones to quickly receive Jesus and believe his message. There was often a correlation between those who were hard-pressed and those who understood their need for a Savior. Those who were in hardship tend to be aware and understand, I need help. Being in those hard situations where they're hard-pressed tends to kill pride. Tends to put people in a place of saying, Lord, I need help. I am in need. But lest we think it's only the poor who responded to Jesus, we have the story of a wealthy man named Zacchaeus in Luke chapter 19. Eventually we'll get there someday, Lord willing. (laughs) Zacchaeus was a wealthy man. He was a tax collector. He was so eager to see Jesus that when Jesus was walking down a road, Zacchaeus ran ahead to climb up in a tree because he was short and there was a crowd around Jesus that prevented him from seeing him. In other words... Zacchaeus, who was wealthy, was willing to look like a fool in order to see Jesus. He was willing to humble himself to get a glimpse. And when Jesus stopped and said, Zacchaeus, come down. I want to stay at your house. Zacchaeus quickly responded and said, look, Lord, if I've cheated anyone, I'll repay them four times. And I'm going to give away half of everything I I have to the poor. He quickly recognized his need. He quickly received Jesus, by God's grace, he understood his need. that's what we see here, is that we all must understand our need. Oftentimes, but not always, it is the case that when you are in hardship, in trial, you're better able to see that need. But regardless of your situation, your circumstance, we all need to recognize that we are those who are captive, that we are those who are in bondage, that we are those who are blind, that we are those who cannot save ourselves, that we are utterly destitute apart from the gracious hand of the Lord. We need the Lord to intervene for us. We need him to save us. We need him to set us free. We need him to give us sight. We need God to give us that humility so that we respond to Christ receiving him in his message. The good news is proclaimed to all and those who understand their true condition will receive it as good news. Well, what we see in these verses is that Jesus is the Messiah who came in fulfillment of all the prophecies and he proclaimed the good news of God's salvation, which is good news for all who receive him. Friends, Jesus is the only one who can save us. He is the only one who can set us at liberty. He is the only one who can give us sight to see and behold God. He is the only one who can deliver us from the bondage of sin, Satan, and the world. The question is, how will you respond to him? Do you recognize your need for him? Do you go to him to get everything that you need? In our passage, we also see the rejection of the man and the message. The initial responses to Jesus are described positively. In verse 15, we read that he was being glorified or praised by all. Word was beginning to spread. People were hearing about him. They were speaking positively of this preacher who had come onto the scene. Even in Nazareth, we see the members of the synagogue giving Jesus their undivided attention. All eyes were fixed on him. They wanted to hear what he had to say. We even read that they spoke well of him and marveled at his gracious words. But their marveling at Jesus and speaking well of his teaching did not mean they were fully embracing the man and his message. We see a shift or a turning point in verse 22 that revealed skepticism among the audience. After reading about how they spoke well of him and marveled at his words, we read, and they said, Is not this Joseph's son? may seem like an innocent question, but it's as if they were saying, he is a compelling teacher who has some very interesting things to say, but now he's claiming that Isaiah 61 is being fulfilled right here, right now, in his preaching. Is he really claiming to be the Lord's chosen and anointed one? the Messiah we've been waiting for? Didn't he grow up around here? Isn't he Joseph's son? Didn't he play in these streets? Isn't he a carpenter? Isn't he the one who made Baruch's table? Don't we know this guy? Where he came from? What begins to emerge is that though they were impressed with his ability to teach, they did not believe he was who he claimed to be. And sadly, many people in the audience that day failed to see who was before them and what was taking place in their midst. What a tragedy. Jesus was able to discern their skepticism. He was not deceived by their flattery. He was not content to receive their praise and for them to accept him as a good teacher. He had to press on them. He said, doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. Again, word was spreading. People were hearing about his teaching and apparently his miraculous deeds. And he knew they were going to expect him to do what they had heard he done elsewhere. Hey, we heard you did this in other places. Why not do it right here for us? Why don't you show us what you can do? Their attitude was, do these things here. We want to see for ourselves. Show us what you can do. They wanted Jesus to prove himself to them. If they had a proverb for Jesus, he had one for them. He said, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. Many of Israel's prophets in the Old Testament were not well received. Oftentimes they were ignored, rejected, or persecuted. And Jesus went on to give two examples of prophets who did mighty deeds outside of Israel rather than in Israel. He referenced Elijah and Elisha, who were prophets during a very dark time in Israel's history, a time characterized by apostasy, In 1 Kings 17, during a drought and famine appointed by the Lord, the Lord sent Elijah to the neighboring region of Sidon to a widow in the city of Zarephath. And it was while he was with this widow that her son died. And the Lord used Elijah to bring him back to life. The Lord used Elijah to perform this miraculous deed to a widow outside of Israel. Elisha, who succeeded Elijah also performed a miraculous deed for a gentile which we read about in 2nd Kings chapter 5 verses 1 to 14 there was a commander of the Syrian armored army named Naaman who had leprosy and he went to Elisha and eventually it was through Elisha's instructions the Lord used Elisha to eventually heal him of his leprosy this was an enemy of the Lord's people The Syrians raided the Lord's people. They attacked them. They did acts of violence against them. And yet the Lord used Elisha to bring healing to one of the enemies of the Lord's people. And Jesus brings this up. And the point that he was making was that, hey, there there were plenty of widows in Israel. At the time of Elisha, the Lord could have sent Elijah too, but he didn't. There were plenty of People with leprosy in Israel the Lord could have sent Elisha to, but he didn't, but he did heal this commander of the Syrian army. And in the synagogue that day, he was comparing those situations with the situation in Nazareth. Brothers and sisters, that was a hard word. Daryl Bach writes... This remark is strong for two reasons. A, it compares the current era to one of the least spiritual periods in Israel's history. And B, it suggests that Gentiles, who were intensely disliked among the Jews, were more worthy of ministry than they were. Jesus warns that failure to respond positively to him risks making the doubting generation equal to the worst days in Israel's history. Wow, when Jesus began to get resistance from the crowd in the synagogue there at Nazareth, he didn't throttle back. He didn't go, well, maybe that's enough for today. They think I'm a good teacher. That's good enough for now. That's something we can build on. Let's just step it back, take it from here. No, Jesus did not throttle back. Instead, he pressed in. He pushed on them. He warned them if you don't receive me, you are in danger. It was a hard word, it was not well received. What did they do? What would have been the right response in that moment? Let's think about that for a moment. What would have been the right response for the people in the synagogue that day? The right response would for them to humble themselves and go, whoa, we better rethink this. We better examine ourselves, and we better consider who is before us. We better take this seriously. We don't want to be guilty of missing the Messiah the chosen and anointed one by the Lord. We need to examine ourselves and examine the truth. That would have been the right response. And then ultimately, of course, to receive and believe the one the Lord sent. But what did they do? They took offense and got angry. They took offense and got angry. And because of that, they were not able to see who's before them. They were not able to receive the word that they needed to hear. Do you see how taking offense and responding in anger can cloud one's judgment? Has this ever happened to you? Have you ever taken offense to something? Someone has said to you and responded in anger, which prevented you from doing some necessary self-evaluation. Well, the people of Nazareth took offense to what Jesus said to them that day and responded in anger. They weren't able to see clearly. They weren't able to see the similarities between them and the Israelites in the days of Elijah and Elisha. They missed an opportunity to repent. What they lacked and what we need is humility. Well, the opposition that day was so intense that they attempted to throw him off a cliff. But it was not the will of the Lord for Jesus to die that day. The rejection of the people that day, however, was an indication of the opposition Jesus would face throughout his ministry. Throughout his ministry, Jesus faced opposition and hostility from some people, culminating with the crowd that sought to put him to death in Jerusalem. Jesus would be put to death, but he would go to the cross according to God's timing. Friends, Jesus requires a response, and he is not looking for admirers. He will not let you be comfortable merely regarding him as a good teacher, a wise guide, a doer of good deeds. For Jesus, you either receive the man in the message or you reject the man in the message. And sadly, the people of Nazareth rejected him that day. Jesus came in fulfillment of the prophecies. He is the servant of the Lord, the Messiah. He brings good news, but it's only good news for those who understand their need, who understand their spiritual state and receive him for who he is. Brothers and sisters, there are a few things I want us to consider regarding how we apply this text. First, we have good news to proclaim. Jesus came proclaiming good news and he commissioned his disciples to continue this ministry, to continue to proclaim the good news and make disciples. And he sent the Holy Spirit to his disciples, to all who believe in him, to empower us to continue to proclaim this good news, to make known the good news of the Messiah and his salvation. We have the joy and the, procl- uh, the, the privilege of continuing the work that Jesus begun. In Romans ten thirteen to 15, we read, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. The Lord wants to use us together and individually to make this good news known to proclaim this good news that many will hear receive respond and believe we want to continue the ministry as Jesus has called us and as he has empowered us to do so second we cannot compromise the proclamation of the gospel by making the man and the message more palatable. Jesus did not compromise his message that day, even though he knew how they would respond. The people of Nazareth needed to receive Jesus as the Messiah, God's chosen and anointed king, to whom they were to fully submit. And even after the people of Nazareth sought to throw him off the cliff, he did not compromise the message knowing that what happened in Nazareth was just a foretaste of what was coming. The point is, Jesus beckons us to come to him, but we must come to him as he is, as he has revealed himself. We don't get to pick and choose what we believe about Jesus. We don't get to decide who he is. He has revealed himself. He has made himself known, and we are to come to him as he has revealed himself, fully embracing and accepting who he is, fully submitting to him as God's Messiah, his chosen and anointed king. And that is the message we proclaim. We call on people to receive Jesus, to believe in him. And we cannot compromise that message. We must be clear about who he is. We must be clear about what our problem is. We must be clear about the judgment that is coming. We must be clear that our only hope is found in Christ and in Christ alone. We do so knowing that for many, this message will seem crazy. And for some, it'll be downright offensive. We know this because of what we see in Scripture. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 18 to 25 Paul wrote, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. The message of the gospel will be a stumbling block for many. just as It was a stumbling block for the people in Nazareth that day. Yet, we don't compromise that message. We don't try to make Jesus more palatable. No, we trust that the gospel is the power of God. And so we want to be clear on making that gospel known and speaking the truth of that gospel so that those who hear will experience the power of God for salvation, even when there's those who will take offense, even when there are those who will consider it folly. Finally, pray regularly for the spirit-empowered ministry of the word to bear much good fruit. As we have already seen, Luke calls attention to the role of the Holy Spirit. Jesus came and proclaimed the good news and the power of the Spirit. And now Jesus gives the gift of the Holy Spirit to all who believe in him. And brothers and sisters, it is the will of Jesus for the spirit-empowered ministry of the word to continue One way we can all apply this text is to pray for the spirit-empowered ministry of the word to bear fruit in our lives, in our church, and in our community. Pray that the spirit-empowered ministry of the word, which comes not only from the preaching, but certainly, Lord willing, through the preaching, but also through our times of studying the word together in Bible studies and small groups and one-on-one discipling relationships and evangelistic opportunities and the various ministries of the church, pray that the spirit-empowered ministry of the word will continue to change and transform lives. We have seen how the spirit-empowered ministry of the word changed and transformed lives in the ministry of Jesus, even though there were some who rejected him. Many lives were transformed, and we pray that will continue. We pray that will continue here within our church family, within many other faithful churches in our community. We pray that we will see sinners come to faith in Jesus Christ, they will know the power of the gospel for themselves. We pray that we would be continually changed and transformed more and more into the likeness and image of Jesus through the spirit empowered preaching of the word. Brothers and sisters, let's pray. Let's pray that that will continue. Let's pray that what Jesus began will continue through his people and through the church. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We praise you for your word. Your word is good. We need your word. We thank you that you sent Jesus into the world, your servant, the Messiah, the chosen and anointed king, anointed by your Holy Spirit to proclaim the good news. We thank you and praise you for the way lives were changed and transformed through the spirit-empowered proclamation of the gospel and the ministry of Jesus. And we thank you that that ministry continues and through your people your church, because you have graciously given your Holy Spirit. So we humbly ask, Lord, that we would be faithful to continue that ministry, to make the gospel known. We pray that we would preach the gospel without compromise. We pray that the Spirit-empowered ministry of the Word would continue. We pray our lives would be continually changed and transformed. We pray that we would see many other lives changed and transformed as well. We do pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.